Heritopia, as promised last week, here is the interview with Rourke Roundtree. They need no introduction. They're, they're going to be staples around here, I'm sure. Uh, riffing off of something I had asked on the message board, here is a very special parallel episode of their Devil's Advocate podcast. Dr. Stephen Rourke and David Roundtree riffing on the possible physics of the paranormal, and so much more. Ready and go! Devil's Advocate Podcast 3. David, you were saying the Paratopia follow-up. Yeah, actually, I I went into the Paratopia uh, message board, and I would laid an egg in there earlier today about... uh, uh, we were going to be recording uh, the episode tonight, and did anybody have anything particular they'd like for us to uh, dredge up? And uh, Jeremy actually uh, wrote, um, wormholes seem to come up a lot in paranormal discussions. I'd like to hear exactly what that means. How is it possible that wormholes can just open and close all over the planet? No problem. But there's the fear, even if unfounded, that the CERN Collider might open a black hole that would suck up the planet. Well, that's pretty entertaining because, as we know, uh, the uh, collider only uses a small smidgen of the energy that bombards the Earth every day. Mm-hmm. So uh, not a real good chance of us uh, imploding ourselves into infinity with the uh, collider. Um, it's actually working on such a micro, micro scale that the energy that it does release requires very special instrumentation to record. Uh, but the original uh, pathway was the whole wormhole discussion. Right. And uh, that tends to be discussed pretty much all of a sudden in all areas of paranormal research, from cryptozoology to UFOlogy to uh, ghostology to what have you ologies. Um, so that's probably a pretty cool thing to open up with because we got lots of time to talk about things. So uh, absolutely, let's uh, let's explore the wormhole phenomenon a little bit here. What say you? Well, I guess if you if you look at all this as some sort of an interdimensional space time slip thing as a as an explanation for EVP, let's say. Um, I mean, I can entertain the thought. It is a framework for understanding the paranormal, which is, I think, why, um, from a a psychological standpoint, why it's attractive. So I would really say, uh, in your case, it is a theory that fits the data. But in the case of some others, in the case of some others, I think, really, they just find it attractive because it explains a whole lot. Kind of like... um, and this is not to be critical of Chris O'Brien. I think his work on the trickster phenomenon is really interesting. But um, the same way that this idea of a trickster explains everything it becomes very attractive to say, ah, the reason for all of these things is the trickster. Well, likewise, one could say, hey, the reason for all these strange events uh, is, is stuff coming through wormholes. So that's a commentary on why folks find it attractive. And okay. uh, I'm sure you could speak better to how it how it fits the data and and the theory and how they interlock well. Well, <clears throat> I have been toying, of course, with the idea of this possibility for several years now, um, particularly the aspect of a type, a special type of wormhole 
because there are several different types uh, of wormholes, actually. And the one that I'm actually uh, interested in is a certain type of a Lorentzian wormhole. Mm-hmm. Um, these hold the most promise to allow for travel, where actually uh, a being it would be possible, but uh, in our case particularly energy would be very possible to uh, traverse these type of wormholes. And the reason why the wormholes can pop up all over the earth is because, and not swallow the earth, is because wormholes are getting confused with black holes. And they're really two different animals. A black hole is actually uh, the result of a neutron star imploding or uh, a very large star going thermonuclear and uh, collapsing in on itself and creating a huge gravity well that you know, opens up this huge black hole that, you know, we don't know where it goes. And uh, there's a whole event horizon where you can virtually rotate around it forever without getting sucked in. And then when you do get sucked in, you get stretched to this, you know, like uh, angel hair spaghetti. Um, but a wormhole is something different. A wormhole is actually a conduit. And what can happen is it can be between two universes. It can be between dimensions. In fact, there's some theoretical thought that a wormhole actually is a dimension in itself, which makes a little bit of sense when you start getting into M-theory. Um, but for practical purposes, it's a big pipe between one reality and another. And uh, these things are very unstable. In other words, they blink in and out in a quantum manner, whereas they will appear for brief periods of time, and then they'll disappear. And then... There are many, many wormholes associated with many, many areas uh, around the world. And uh, the fact that they don't stay open for very long probably lends to the fact that we haven't discovered them yet or have stumbled upon their effects and not clearly understood what we were dealing with. Um, But looking at it from that aspect, wormholes are just doorways that open and close and with their own rhyme or reason that we don't understand. Um, and And the data that we have collected seems to indicate that something of that nature is occurring based on the encounter we've had with uh, high levels of gamma radiation, which would indicate uh, matter colliding and being at least slightly out of phase so that it causes some minor uh, annihilations, which in turn would give off the gamma radiation. Uh, Time slippage, where we have a time anomaly occurring, where the way time is measured is affected, which would indicate some type of bubble. Uh, space-time bubble is occurring. Um, then the reception of EMF uh, drops in atmospheric pressure, which would indicate a differential in the atmospheric pressure of the opening versus the actual environment. Um, a lo- there's a lot of data that is indicating something is altering a very small section, a very localized area in a paranormal, I'll call it an event horizon. And what I really think is happening is, is as the throat or the funnel opens up, most of the things we're measuring is actually effects of the wormhole coming into being, blinking in, and only a very small percentage of what we're reading is actually the paranormal event itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, this is based on two experiments in the same place, so, you know, it's uh, certainly far from being you know, a sure thing. Um, but what we've encountered is pretty compelling evidence that this may be 
a possible explanation, and it's certainly something that we need to continue to concentrate on in our future investigations. Now, speak specifically to um, some of the hardest data. I mean, it's tertiary, but it's some of the hardest data f that supports your um, your kind of working hypothesis of this, the gamma radiation that's been detected. Tie in that's quickly. That's, oh, yeah, yeah, it's huge, but tie in quickly how it, its meaning and, um, and, and the possibilities for this uh, traversable wormhole issue. Well, the whole thing is, is, is uh, gamma radiation is, is the product of, generally speaking, either a thermonuclear explosion, you know, some type of catastrophic event, mm -hmm. or uh, contacting of antimatter and matter, which causes particle annihilation. Or in my theoretical aspect is I believe that there is matter that isn't antimatter, but it's matter that is slightly uh, out of phase with our own matter, so that it doesn't cause a catastrophic annihilation as much as it causes... Uh, like a micro-annihilation, where you've got subatomic particles annihilating and not atoms. Um, and these subatomic particles, like, you know, quarks, leptons, this sort of thing, when they annihilate, they give off uh, a pretty high degree of gamma radiation. Now, unless your house is located on a uranium field, you're not going to encounter gamma radiation uh, in your house unless you're in the middle of an X-ray storm or you've got cosmic rays that are punching holes through the atmosphere and not being stopped, which is highly unlikely in a very localized area. So that was the huge clue that something you know entertaining was going on there. Um, the second thing that's probably most entertaining was the actual appearance of uh, EMF. I call it spontaneous EMF, where it just kind of comes out of nowhere and, and you're picking it up. And, of course, much of this is comes in the form of electronic voice phenomena. Uh, some of it comes in the form of uh, wave patterns that resemble brain waves. Um, mm -hmm. And these appear to be coming from nowhere. So by using a triangulation device to try to locate the point of entry of the EMF, we generally figured out that the location point was occurring a couple of feet off the floor near the center of the room. So that tells me that this spontaneous EMF is being generated in thin air, which was another clue that something has to be opening up and allowing this stuff to come through. Um, and the idea is, is that while it may not be possible for a being to come through, although I'm not ruling that out because we have these things in cryptozoology that may be related and UFOs and things like that, certainly pure energy can come through, and there's no argument about that. And that's what we're reading, these pure energy uh, patterns that are coming through. Um, and then there's other things involved, the time differentials, uh, space-time anomaly, which would also indicate a potential uh, dimensional rift or some type of uh, trans-universal uh, portal opening up, um, <laughs> excuse me, as well as uh, uh, the atmospheric pressure changes. And by the way, these are... These atmospheric pressure drops are noted all over the world. Um, in, people in England, investigators in England, first discovered that there was an associated barometric pressure drop just prior to a paranormal event. And they began using, like, wristwatches with barometers on them to help predict when an event was going to occur with some degree of success. Mm -hmm. So uh, bearing that data into the mix, along with... You know, other things, uh, elevated ion counts, uh, increased level of atmospheric conductivity, uh, and, and uh, that's 
sort of thing. I mean, we have a whole lot of things going on in a very localized area that have no rhyme or reason or explanation. So you have to start, when you can't find something in the normal to explain it, you have to start looking at the uh, um, abnormal. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Yeah, in this case, the theoretical. Yes, so you have to start looking in theory for what could possibly fit what was actually going on in the environment. And, of course, also we would get you know temperature drops, and these drops were not areas. They were blobs of cold air mm-hmm. or blobs of cold that would, and they were kind of amorphous. You know, they were very amoeba-shaped type things. Mm-hmm. And you could actually track them across the room with handheld uh, ambient air temperature uh, sensors and, and actually, you know, figure out the size and shape and then track their movement. And there's all these things associated. Now, these cold spots tend to come out of this portal as well, or at least appear at the position where this other stuff is going on. So their entry point, whatever it is, is entering the same place everything else is. So it all kind of ties neatly into this package that says somebody just opened a door. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only mm, theoretical explanation for that type of doorway would be a theoretical wormhole. Yep, and now we're switching roles a little bit. So uh, I'm going to play the uh, break it down role. So essentially, to answer that uh, person questioning, a wormhole is, in theory, um, essentially much like a tunnel with two ends, each in separate points in space-time. And what you're discussing, in theory, would be um, an interdimensional transition. And you're not debating the fact that these could be transitory, um, you're not even making a statement about their relative size because these could be microscopic wormholes. We've theorized about this saying uh, they don't have to be large like in sci-fi movies for information to travel through, and they could be rather instantaneous. Absolutely. They yeah. could be a burst-type thing where they just open, fire off a burst, and close. Right, and so we, yeah, we need to start thinking outside the box like these are not um, stargates or something that open like no, in these no. shows. And, so, and that's the thing. And, and also, a wormhole is one way. Yeah, well, yes, there's that too. Energy or what have you, matter, can only travel one direction in a wormhole. Consequently, this brings up a very interesting dilemma. Mm-hmm. If something is coming... And then it goes. How does it go? Uh, what do you mean? Are you discussing directionality? Yeah, say some, something comes into our, our universe. Something mm-hmm. comes into our dimension, our, our reality. Um, and it lingers enough to, oh, say, move a salt shaker across the room or provide some interesting conversation or whatever, and then it, it goes. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how does it go if... The wormhole is only one way. Well, I started doing a lot of digging, and this whole double helix thing, like in DNA, is turning up all through the universe in all sorts of places where you would never uh, expect it to. Mm-hmm. So I'm hypothesis, my hypothesis on this is that the wormhole that we're dealing with is a type of double helix where you actually have a dual throat opens, and whatever you're receiving, whatever you measure, enters the environment for a period of time. Oh, I see exactly where you're going. That's, this is amazing. Yeah. And then, and then once it dissipates, it doesn't really dissipate. It, instead of disappearing, it actually returns in a quantum fashion back through the attached throat. Mm-hmm. So there, so so there is no... We have a corkscrewing wormhole double helix that bores through, opens up, 
phenomena to phenomena to occur, or information to influence, or information to pass, and then the residual matter returns from whence it came. No, that's no, that is uh, that is incredible. Now we're in the truly theoretical now, but um, oh, we're way out in the theoretical. But, but folks need to know that you know there are people much more brilliant than you or I who've worked a lot of this out, and this issue. Or I should say this possibility of um, exotic matter. Now, uh, we would have no way of measuring this, to be clear. Um, some of what you're measuring as tertiary effects may be evidence of this. Um, but exotic, uh, the issue of traversable wormholes, to be clear, this could only happen, um, this would only be possible if exotic matter with um, negative energy density could be used to stabilize them, and by that we again don't mean any sort of like um, like a stargate. To stabilize could literally mean for a fraction of a second when you're speaking right. about things um, being active at the Planck scale, right? So, right. so right. this uh, exotic matter, it it is theoretically possible that this could be going on. It's also uh, it's been in the literature. It seems to be the most mathematically exquisite way to explain um, this incredible thing called gravity, which is uh, so spread out and yet so pervasive, um, this idea of many more dimensions, you know, who knows how many, but um, all this coming together to say, hey, if they could be stabilized and there's every possibility of the dimensions, this would be a sensible way for someone to if not intentionally communicate, uh, maybe accidentally communicate. You know, much in the way our television signals go out with no thought right. to their uh, meaning or effect upon any other civilization, this may be the same effect we're seeing. Yes, exactly. And and the whole aspect of the gamma production may be a byproduct of that exotic matter meeting yeah. the matter of our reality, our thinking. universe, yeah. so to speak. And that's why we don't get a wormhole, a wormhole turning into a, a black hole no. or some other catastrophic explosive type of behavior. It's more of a cancellation is occurring uh, between two different, radically different types of matter. Mm -hmm. And yet it's not antimatter. So it, the negative matter, exotic matter concept fits quite perfectly into the explanation for the data. Mm -hmm. um, so this, then, again, is another... Uh, brick in the wall for building the case uh, for the paranormal wormhole. But it sure is, and it needs to be added again because I, I like to pile on the, you know, legitimate science. Um, uh, I like to pile that on our woodpile of discussion here. Many physicists believe that something called the Casimir effect is yes. evidence that negative energy densities are possible in nature. And again, these negative energy densities would be a consequence of exotic matter existing um, here now with us. So That's exactly right. Yeah, so if there is so again the implica the <clears throat> the implications are incredible here. Um, to go really nerdy. If if somehow this were legitimized that David were detecting um, the effects of exotic matter in the form of negative energy densities, thereby, you know, legitimizing this exotic matter Casimir effect 
connection. This could go a long way in validating a quantum foam hypothesis, which is sometimes used to suggest that tiny wormholes um, appear and disappear spontaneously at the Planck scale. And again, that's that's really tiny, but we don't need them to be large for information to come through. And um, uh, it could also, in some ways, delegitimize the the notion of uh, the the Schwarzschild wormhole, which would say a lot about all the metrics used to describe these things, and maybe forever ban the connection that people have in their minds, which you spoke about earlier. There's this connection in the mind of wormhole, black hole, and that's because of the math that underpins the uh, the Schwarzschild wormhole, which um, right. you know became popular as the. Um, uh, what well, was that? Did, really well, no, the Schwarzschild predated the Einstein-Rosen. No, it didn't. It actually was slightly after, but slightly after, it, yeah. It, it was a uh, attempt to uh, mathematically prove the whole concept of black holes. You're right, right. Um, and, and it became this eternal black hole. hole was part of the problem, and the way the math right. worked out and the metrics, it became this eternal black hole problem. Right. And uh, hence, you know, the Disney movies and uh, and even right. these these ridiculous drawings, which. You know, folks need to know. You see these drawings. This is this is an attempt to bring an approximation uh, uh, to the reader for understanding. Exactly. You know, because you, what you, what all this math does, and what you're talking about, the possibility of um, a traversable wormhole, even if just for information, even if just a transient phenomenon, even at just at a very tiny scale. Um, you essentially to visualize. I mean, it's impossible for us to do it. Our brains almost don't work that way. You'd have to imagine a two-dimensional surface, kind of folded along what mathematicians would ultimately describe as a non-existent third plane. Uh, you'd then have this bridge, which would be a consequence of all the exotic matter and all this we just discussed. So it's almost impossible to discuss this in, in, in pictures or any useful way right. beyond trying to explain that there's this possibility of, in theory, like a tunnel with two ends, each in separate points in space-time, to say nothing of what space and what time. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and the conundrum of the whole thing is, is that it could be from a t- completely different time which would explain a lot of the anecdotal evidence surrounding a paranormal event. For example, you witness an apparition, let's say, that is dressed in Victorian garb. Mm -hmm. Well, this uh, energy may have traveled from a different time and may be a projection or a holographic representation of the consciousness. I mean, and that transmission of the consciousness let's say that consciousness becomes pure energy at some state and that transmission becomes to our perception a three-dimensional holographic projection uh, which is what we see when people report seeing a ghost Um, but that energy there's another part of the equation here that often gets overlooked and that's the zero point energy field which the Casimir experiments that were done at uh, Princeton where they actually built a large air capacitor and and measured uh, energy between the two plates when no energy was applied uh, is significant because it it not only proves the existence of zero-point energy, it in turn also proves the existence of exotic matter, which in turn links uh, the existence of exotic matter with the zero-point energy field. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the zero-point energy field, I believe, is the Genesis energy. It was the energy that permeated through the uncreated universe prior to the Big Bang. And something occurred, the quantum uh, singularity, which may have been an adjacent universe opening up a black hole and pouring into this one, where gobs of matter got sucked in and literally exploded out from the entry point, which could have created the Big Bang. In turn, our black holes may be creating universes on the other side of them, just like ours was created. It may just be a whole series of bubbles in the quantum foam, and as those bubbles burst, you know, a, a new existence is created or a new universe is born. Uh, another Big Bang, for example. So I not only think our universe was created uh, as a prospect of this, of this system, but our universe as well is creating side universes splintering off of it from wormholes that we have observed in, in our own uh, universe, um, which means that there is probably an infinite number of universes coming into being and, and disappearing uh, every day, and we're just unaware of it because it's in such a macro scale, and we're so insignificant when compared to it in size. Mm-hmm. That we, we will never know for sure something like that's going on unless we happen to observe one actually, you know, taking place. It's the it's the measurability problem all over, and exactly. combined with the perspective problem. And that's the conundrum. Yeah. You know, not only can we not visualize it, you know, we can't measure it, or can ever hope to measure it with our current technology and knowledge as it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, I I heard someone uh, once speak about the possibility of frame dragging effects, and of course. Everyone would, familiar with that would say, oh, well, this has got to be a localized thing, and that might explain some of the, um, <clears throat> you know, the uh, EVP voices detected, you know, this electronic voice phenomenon. Perhaps this is to some degree a combination of, you know, frame dragging and uh, who knows, atmospheric anomalies. Or sure, something. sure, and it's possible, and I'll be the first one to tell you that a lot of EVP has a natural explanation. Mm-hmm. A lot of it does. Well, what I was about uh, to do was was attempt to kind of just, um, in its most gross features. I mean, we're not going to get into the you know the field equations from Einstein's notes, but um, we would certainly they, put the audience. To yeah, but but the but the point is they they butt up together nicely that um, frame dragging taking taken to a grand enough scale um, would almost facilitate. What you were discussing earlier about why, what you, you what take, you'd need at one end for traversable wormholes, you know. Right. Why, why don't you take a second and explain frame dragging? Because I'm I'm sure there are people out there going, huh? What? what oh, you right. Well, um, I mean, I folks familiar with the general principle of relativity, right? right. Um, Correct. It deals with um, effects uh, in the vicinity of rotating massive objects. So the easiest way to do this would be to think of space as molasses and think of the heavy object as um, a bowling ball and as this heavy object spins at whatever rate it has an effect upon this molasses and you could almost see that at some points um, the effect of the molasses the way it interacts with that heavy object in its rotation is such that you'll have a fairly uniform activity 
I know we're discussing fluid dynamics. It's a completely wrong comparison, but for the purposes of picturing it in your mind. But for visualization, yeah. think, think vortex. Yes, yeah, so right, so you're around. thinking vortex. Now, you've got this... Vortex around the ball. You've got this pretty uniform effect happening, right? But yeah. occasionally, occasionally, a, a, a drop or two of the molasses will spin back in on the ball and touch it a second time. Um... That would be a, that would be an idea of like rotational frame dragging. Um, it's called the lens thurring effect. Anyway, it's like a frame of reference thing. Um, what it actually is is it's it is it is turbulence, and and what happens is is it creates a a ripple within the vortex. And I mean, this is purely visualization now. <laughs> and that what that does is it creates a turbulent effect which affects the uniformity. Of the vortex, mm, like a perturbation, like yes, yeah. and mm. and so in that area where that disturbance occurs, you have weird things occur. You have uh, um, probabilities probabilities alter in that area, mm -hmm. um, and that's the area where uh, the fun stuff occurs. And and that that's really probably that was a really good way to to have a visualization of it. Well, we tried, but you know, the uh, if folks want to read more about that, there was this really cool gravity probe B experiment that um, verified all this lens throwing effect stuff. That's basically rotational frame dragging. There's other kinds of frame dragging which may apply, but like you said, we don't want to put people to sleep. There's a linear one, and if if uh, dimensions move like sheets on top of each other, that may apply in the macro. And then there's a um, another kind of sort of frame-dragging effect called static mass increase, which may, I could see how in a real tertiary way, it may um, uh, it may relate to uh, what we were talking about earlier with, um, you know, this, this issue of uh, these special regions where we might see the effects of exotic matter. All right, so all that being as it may, um, why don't you tell folks, we mentioned Planck scale a few times, and then that, then I'd recapitulate and say, well, that means you know, teeny tiny. Just how tiny is the Planck scale, and and why why would that still be okay for um, uh, to facilitate the effects we see because it would allow information to pass? Yes, and and that's it. Um, the key here isn't so much size; it's ability for energy to pass. And like we say, that could be. Eight foot across, it could be two micrometers across. Right. I mean, literally, uh, it could be the size of a micron. So uh, I think it's slightly larger than that because of the effects and the area of effect. But again, uh, this is speculation at this point. Um, but uh, the whole concept of the wormhole is our best attempt to offer a scientific explanation for the source point of paranormal-like phenomena. And that's why we're beating it like a dead horse right now. No, absolutely. And, and the reason I think it's important is because if we don't kind of ver if we don't qualify how small the Planck scale is, someone may, someone may go with your theory and then say, now wait a second, it seems that the most well-established theoretically possible traversable wormholes are these ones that exist at the Planck scale, right? And then they'd right. see how small the Planck scale is. They'd say, it's, it's smaller than a proton? So now, wait a second. But, but smaller than a proton doesn't mean 
it will um, not allow um, the wavelength of a photon, for example, to pass through, which it would, and that, that's, exactly uh, right. that's information. So It sure is. Yeah, a lot so of information can be put on a photon. Yes, you're not kidding. So, I mean, and, and here's the thing. This is what makes it so vital for mainstream science to, to actually be interested in what we're doing because we may be on the verge of proving that certain quantum effects exist on a macro level. Oh, yes, this is the scalability issue, and we can't beat this dead horse enough either. No, and, that, and that's huge, I mean, because we may be on the verge of actually proving a theory to be fact. And and in quantum mechanics, that's a big rarity, um, because uh-huh. most of it is pure pure theory anyway. Um, I mean, it's like totally theoretical f- physics. So, I mean, the whole concept, I mean, the only thing that would be just as big as this would be if they find Higgs boson. Mm. Higgs boson. That would be huge as well. That sure would. Change that everything. would totally change the playing field. But yeah. uh, um, it's interesting that CERN is actually in the race with uh, Fermilab. They're in a race with each other to find Higgs boson. Yeah, that's and, a very good competition. And, and yeah, and it's a great race to watch, to, to be a spectator of. But um, we're looking at it from a different aspect, and the aspect that we're looking at has huge implications as well. The only problem is, is some of the greatest minds in the world are working on the search for Higgs boson, and you know, a couple of people like me are looking for the wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, it, it needs to be said that um, some folks, anonymous and spoken for, you know, they've uh, they've been in communication with you and some serious minds, some folks that you've been incredibly impressed with. Yes, that that actually is true, and and I think um, I have uh, actually. Uh, pontificated with them in such a manner that they uh, they were actually interested to the degree of offering up uh, potential courses of action to follow up on some of these things, which uh, to me is just breathtaking in many ways, because for so many years in this field, I felt like I was the lone ranger out here. Mm, you were. Uh, doing things that people thought I was crazy to start with for even doing, you know, why bother? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they didn't have the vision I had when I saw these things and said, hmm, there's something that's very unusual here that needs further explanation, you know? Um, and most of the time, you know, these things are dismissed out of hand as, as being a product of the witnesses psyche uh but i can tell you that guilty uh, having having witnessed some very peculiar things over the last 30 some odd years myself i can't say that and having several people who have different psyches witness the same things and actually uh, uh reaffirm what each of us witnessed kind of takes it out of the realm of the psyche and more into the realm of the physical. And uh, that's, I think, what got me so into this was, you know, a paranormal experience that I had when I was young and then several other isolated paranormal incidences as I grew up. And then finally, uh, when I was in the military, a paranormal incident occurred that probably saved my life. And then uh, uh, a series of, of paranormal events that occurred, when I say peri, there were things that I couldn't explain, um, that occurred that actually made me say, you know, um, I want to know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. 
this is getting kind of weird, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's really what got me started into this whole thing. I mean, I, when I was young, I started reading a lot of books about this stuff because I'd had something happen, and I was curious, you know, and I was young, very impressionable. And I had the, the, the blessedness to live next door to uh, a, a fellow who was a retired professor. Uh, he was an engineer. He helped design the Liberty aircraft engine during World War II. And at his retirement, he was a pattern maker. And he had literally made patterns for the Apollo uh, space capsule, uh, different fittings and stuff like that. In fact, after the fire of Apollo 1, he redesigned the oxygen fitting that was the primary cause for the malfunction that caused the fire. Mm-hmm. So this man had a bookshelf full of weird books. I mean, you know, yeah, he taught me trigonometry when I was like, you know, 12 years old and you know, stuff like that, and he taught me how to woodwork and things like that, but he had all these books like by Frank Edwards and hmm. all these different uh, paranormal writers, Ignatius Donnelly, you know, I read about Atlantis, I read about ESP, I read about, you know, uh, the Ryan Center and, and all these research that was done as a kid. So it's it's kind of ironic that today I'm a professional member at the Ryan Center when reading about J.B. Ryan and his early research with, I mean, he's actually the father of parapsychology. He termed, he coined the term parapsychology mm-hmm. uh, in his book. But to actually be a part of that now, it's kind of like a dream come true in a very um, abstract way. Um, but reading all this junk, you know, which people thought was just, you know, dime store novel trash that was out there, I got my juices flowing, and, you know, I started wanting to uh, find Bigfoot, and I started wanting to see a UFO. And uh, uh, while I never saw a strange creature, I have seen a UFO, so... Uh, and then the paranormal ghosty part of it, of course, is another legend all of its own, but um, that's what started me down the path, and I was just an, an average, you know, kid reading stuff that, you know, was just weird and fascinating, and it made its mark, so... And now here we're standing on the precipice of what may be a huge, huge discovery, not only in the realm of, of paranormal, but in the realm of quantum mechanics. Oh, yeah. And, and I look uh, back uh, upon the journey and just like Grateful Dead says, what a strange trip it's been, you know. <laughs> and, and at the same time, couldn't have gone any other way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the probability was is this is where I would be. And it's kind of like Douglas Adams. He said something I'll, I'll never forget. He says, I'm I'm not where I set out to be, but I'm where I ought to be. See? You know? So, <laughs> you know, it's like you start out on a path, and you never end up really where you start out. You really end up someplace else, and if you're lucky, you end up where you're supposed to be. And I kind of think that's where I'm at right now. But Yeah, well, I, I think it is, too. It's a very exciting time for me right now, because I'm on the brink of a lot of things, and every day is a discovery. So it's it's uh, and it feeds, you know, the juices. So when one thing is discovered, you build upon it until it collapses, if it does. And if it doesn't collapse, then you build upon it more. And that's basically the step by step pathway to to knowledge. So, but that's the whole wormhole uh, shtick. No, it sure is. And to further kind of bolster and support this notion, we we have referred to. Um, you know the literature and uh, this and that uh, being founded um, or foundational theory. Well, 
we can bring it to the everyman level with National Geographic News, and I know that this is going back to 2008, but there's an article called Unknown Structures Tugging at Universe, study says. And uh, there's actually, I'm surprised a, a bad sci-fi movie hasn't been named after this yet, but uh, Good time. Dark Flow uh, was named in a nod to dark energy and dark matter, which are obviously two other unexplained astrophysical phenomenon. Uh, although legitimate as they may be, dark flow is um, highly theoretical at this point. But the, the point is this notion of um, uh, the, what underpins the theory of dark flow could rewrite the laws of physics is, is the point of this article. Absolutely. And these are NASA Goddard space scientist guys talking and astrophysicists talking. And essentially, they're... Super nerds. Yes, the super nerds are claiming that um, on the outskirts of um, creation that there are these um, unseen, and they call them structures, for lack of a better term, tugging on our universe, um, almost like uh, cosmic magnets. And they say that everything in, in this known universe, um, that's why I brought up the directionality question much, much earlier, because I thought immediately of this article, because everything in this known universe is said to be um, racing toward what they call, quote, the massive clumps of matter at more than two million miles an hour, yes. and uh, they and, have and we are continually accelerating. I mean, we oh, are yes. going faster and faster. But now yeah. they have decided that this has become such a uniformly accepted notion, um, uh, empirically resultant to some of the probes we sent out and the math that has then been done. That they're calling this. Um, uh, they're calling this movement. The researchers have dubbed it dark flow. Okay, so the point is that, uh, and I'm thinking implications here, um, this would have to be extra-universal matter. Yes. Right, and it suggests then that our universe is part of something bigger, like a multiverse. Yes. Right, and that whatever is out there would have to be very different from the universe we know. Yes. Uh, and, otherwise, and it wouldn't have things. this magnetic and clashing effect. One of one of the things that I use when I speak publicly mm -hmm. is uh, for this concept of multiverse is the old clothesline and the sheets hanging on it routine. Mm. Oh and yes, how they, the way they touch. How, mm -hmm. how they don't move normally and they don't interact normally, but when a wind blows, a gentle breeze will blow. They'll start to sway and eventually, in places, they'll touch and matter transfers. That's right. Well, that wind is the dark flow. Mm-hmm. The dark flow is pulling multiple universes, and that is like a big wind that flaps these brains or flaps these realities or flaps these universes to the point of where they touch and fold and interact and, and create interference between them where laws of physics are twisted uh, in a very hideous manner. Uh, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I believe... That that's that, that they're on the right track. I believe that this dark flow is the interuniversal energy that creates the interactions between these mul these multiple universes, mm -hmm. because it has to be something independent of the universes themselves, because it affects all of them. Yeah, that's right. And these structures are outside the realm of the multiverse. Mm -hmm. but affecting every aspect of the multiverse. Yeah, and if this were kind of 
quantum stuff taken to a much larger scale. I'm, I'm betting by structures, they're referring to some mathematical template they've kind of, you know, some new calculus they've laid out to describe these clouds of probabilities when the rules bend. It's my guess. I'm, I'm wagering, you know, th- this is the way I look at it, from the smallest microscopic particle uh, to the universe and orbits of planet, everything is orbiting a central body. Mm-hmm. From all the way up to the atom, all the way out to uh, planets, stars, the galaxies, everything rotates. Everything has an orbital uh, um, schism attached to it. Mm-hmm. So I'm anticipating that multiverses are also orbiting. Yeah, that's sensical. And uh, and then they're spinning and orbiting. You know, there are times when there are multiverses we will never interact with, but there are those that we will continue to interact with mm-hmm. uh, because of their localization to our uh, our own universe. Now, the, the one thing we can assume they share with us, and I know we are a slave to the arrow of time, but I think we've got to assume that they would also... Um, that they would also be a slave to the hour of time if there were these, you know, post um, or supra fourth dimensional beings. Well, you'd um, have to look at it kind of abstractly because um, a lot of people conceive time as being something that moves or that flows, you know, mm. and and that's simply not the case. Time is just an interval. It's mm-hmm. it's a, a gap between events. That's right. And and to me, time is a landscape. It's like uh, we're standing on a flat plane, and that plane is time. So to move to a new position or to move to a new time, we shift our location on that landscape. Now, in the course of our day-to-day living and everyday lives, as the minutes tick away, which is a very uh, human and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, notion that was created for us to keep our sanity and schedule our meetings and things like that. And it's our we are slowly blowing across this landscape mm-hmm. for the length of our lives. And history is laid out across this landscape. So it's theoretically possible by using a wormhole to move from one position on that landscape to another. Now, it's hard to visualize this because we're looking at time like a dimension, like it's a uh, dimensional existence, and mm-hmm. I think it is. I think it is a dimension. Um, mm-hmm. It would it would make it a lot easier if it was. Um, so I'm running with it. Um, yeah, it's temporal for real. <laughs> but um, this is a dimension that's interacting within our own perceived three dimensional world. Mm-hmm. So in other words, we're perceiving in three dimensions. Well, there's no law in physics that prevents. We know now with M theory that there's at least 11 dimensions, possibly more. Mm -hmm. I would wager there's probably an infinite number of dimensions. But uh, uh, there's no law in physics that prohibits any of those dimensions from combining in three or more gatherings to create another reality that would occupy the same spatial existence we do but would be oblivious to us and us to them. Mm Mm-hmm. So there are layers of probabilities and possibilities involved in this whole study that we're in. This, this no, it's true. The, the rules could change so... Um, drastically. Drastically, that this business of the arrow of time. But now I'm thinking, though, kind of going from your notion that these, that these larger patterns apply, uh, you know, uh, that, that things are circular, 
you know, orbital. Orbital. There are perturbations in these orbits, and uh, this leads to novelty and, you know, this kind of thing. If if we look at how ingrained... Now, I know when we say time, we're talking about a metric and a, and a unit of measurement, and it's right. the clock is circular because the Earth is a sur- is a spherical, and I get that. But there's there's every reason to believe that that pattern of enslaved to the arrow of time would hold as well. Now, I know you're saying... What you're saying is that we could also expect to completely not be able to understand what it's like in this um in this theoretical other place of yes. possibilities because there could of be our perception could be a confluence of physical realities that are um That's you know right. completely uh, we can't conceive of them we can't you know, arrange them with our thought process or our logic right. process and, well, and here's here's something else that even you know, further complicates it is We may see something foreign in our reality Mm -hmm. that we see something that is not what we're seeing. But because what we're seeing, our brain cannot define, it attaches a definition to it so it can understand it. Oh, like it it makes a cultural construct out of it. Yes. Yeah. Because we may witness something so totally foreign to us that we can't assemble it. Yeah. And therefore, to maintain our sanity, our brain assembles it in something we can recognize. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which is really, in the end, a completely rational thing. Yes, and and, and my whole notion is, is that w- we have to check and recheck everything we do because this may be a product of what we're dealing with as well. So, real research in in this, and I hate to use the word field, but for a better word. Um, to me, it is a field. Um, to other people, it's you know a flower bed. But <clears throat> um, to me, I have to look at all of these aspects. I have to look at the whole, the sum, the sum total of everything conceivable that could be affecting the experience. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to have a lot of help in that because I do not have a real. You know, I took deviant behavior. You know, in college and things like that. But you know, I'm I'm really not a psych major at all. Have to talk to people with that kind of background to understand perception mm-hmm. uh, in the purely um, psychosis of the event. In other words, when something occurs, there's the reality of the event, of the event, and then there's the psychosis of the event that occurs with it. Mm-hmm. Now, the weight of the anecdotal evidence of the eyewitness account hinges upon the psychosis of the event. And I know that's a heavy thing to say, but how that person's perceived what they perceived is tantamount to what they perceived. And that's the part that's very difficult to analyze. Now, you do mean the, um, you do mean the perception of the event. Yes. I mean, when that person sees something happen, mm-hmm. they're relying, their eyewitness testimony is relying upon their perception what they perceive the event to be. Now, if it's an isolated witness who was by themselves when something happened, it's very difficult to analyze that event because you're dealing with a single point of view and a single perception, and you have no idea how much of it is colored or how much of it is a product of the psychosis of the event. This is why multiple witness of the same event is so valuable 
because if you have multiple psyches, multiple individuals who perceive the same thing, that takes it out of the realm of a manufactured reality from the brain because people mm-hmm. are not alike. They're yeah. each going to manufacture, if it's a manufactured aspect, they're each going to assemble a different reality that they perceived. Okay, so just to be clear, because um, um, you, psychosis of an event, like when you say that, I think most folks are going to jump to you know the the idea that you're that referring crazy. to a severe mental disorder. Right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying a thought disorder, a perception disorder. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is what I. Um, so maybe we could just if if you agree with my understanding of the term, we might get on board with this term. I just would rather refer to that as um, anomalous perception, uh, because this way we don't we don't tamper with um, what is a pretty good definition for psychosis. You know, uh, it's a, that means it's a severe a severe mental disorder in which contact with reality is right. lost or highly distorted. Now you're talking about but less less severe and, too, and rather yeah. temporary. Stephen, we have to establish that, though, too, because there is a psychosis involved with many people that experience these events. Yeah, there so is. Yeah, very Im- and you know that better than anybody, so it's very important that we segregate this abnormal perception mm. from the psychosis that can, can, that can occur. And this gets, so through, this gets through the real pith of a question. Yes, and, it does. And I'm going to ask the essential question, which is really a signal-to-noise question and beyond how much is so so in all of in all of these events we've discussed scientific underpinnings now we're a little under an hour and we're about to transition from the theoretical underpinnings the possibilities of of a new math and science that might somehow allow the paranormal to be the bridge between our understanding of the standard model and what is the model of everything beyond Um, and now we're moving into really the observer and the role the observer plays in this, and how Which you huge. you can't extricate the observer from the process. Absolutely right. Not. So, so we There's need to discuss. It, which is precisely why we're about to ask the question: How much is anomaly, and how much is anomalous perception? That's exactly right. And that is the that is huge. Yeah, it's the essential guiding question when you're going to get into this notion of, you know, hey, uh, uh, to what extent do subjects protect against? disconfirmation to what extent do subjects like you said confabulate or even enter a state of psychoses to somehow cope with what they may have experienced or seen exactly yeah and those are legitimate questions exactly and i feel very strongly that this is an area that parapsychology should be concentrating on uh because i think it's a legitimate experimental path to follow and there's not a lot of work being done. There's a little more being done with uh, perception now, and there's a lot of work being done on intent. Oh, yeah. Power of intent. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff like that, but the actual perception, the problem is is that the previous research that's been done on the human perception relating to these type of events has always been of a negative nature. It's always been as trying to classify the person into a, uh, a mental status. Uh, trying to catalog them mm-hmm. into uh, a notion that they're, you know, this or they're that, or they have some uh, mental malady involved in, in, in what they're experiencing. And while that may be the case in some of these cases, it's certainly 
certainly not universal. There are instances that stand out like a sore thumb that, that defy these explanations because these are rational people like airline pilots, uh, you know, uh, chief of police that, that have experiences that you cannot discount as being, you know, someone that didn't have their Thorazine this morning. So, mm-hmm. I mean, these are things that have to be looked at seriously, and they are not by the majority of the psychological field. Although we're starting to see a little more of it now, but that's because of like the effects of quantum neurology, uh, all these uh, quantum mechanics seeping into other areas of science, mm-hmm. um, and, and that sort of thing. And, and well, we might want to walk uh, the eavesdroppers to our conversation, maybe from some of the more basic stuff that surrounds perception, and then um, end up with the stu- <clears throat> the Stuart Hameroff stuff, which is really kind of higher order thinking, and if um, I would fear if folks don't kind of have a, a primer on it. Um, you you had read um, my Inference of the Best Explanation paper, right, where essentially I get into, that's a short title for it, but essentially it was my decision-making model for continuance of the investigation of uh, Spiricom, which right. was brought up on the last Paratopia show, and I had a discussion of logical fidelity and... Um, uh, irrational mimetics, and I, I got in pretty deep into like a psychobiological explanation for um, for the paranormal ethos in the human, and um, perhaps I mean, you you of all people are, are good to talk about it because you have explored this in that particular case pretty pretty dramatically, and, and uh, so I'm I'm kind of sitting back and enjoying this now because. Uh, you're 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 getting ready to lay the egg. Well, yeah, I hope yeah, let's hope it's the golden <laughs> egg. But we ought to give a uh, a quick primer in case because we can't assume folks listen to Paratopia or the Devil's no, Advocate. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have have no idea exactly the mechanics of what we're talking about. So, so. just real quick, I'll lay out what the Spiricom story is. Um, uh, from the mid 1960s to the early 1980s, research on the development of a, of a technological means of communication with the dead was conducted by this Meta Science Foundation, and there was a uh, there was a president who was uh, George W. Meek. He was the benefactor to William J. O'Neill, um, uh, a self-described psychic electronics engineer, who supposedly developed a device that would um, facilitate two-way conversations with the dead and they called it Spiricom for spirit communications okay that's the that's the short and long of it uh, in 1980 this William O'Neill figure um, who I explore in depth in that uh, paper we just referred to um, again a, a fellow who kind of fits the, the schizotypy schizotypy being this psychological concept um, which describes a, a spectrum or continuum of personality characteristics and experiences related to psychosis to uh, to tie in David's term earlier. And I think in O'Neill's case it was schizophrenia, but we're not saying uh, that, you know, this is all schizophrenia. We're just being real clear about the terms. And that idea of latent schizotypy uh, is an interesting one because it really, it's the psychological field's way of saying well, latent schizotypy, does that mean that someone could be made crazy by certain... Um, that could trigger a reaction. Yeah, and, see? And that's the mm-hmm. whole concept. Something can happen yeah. to bring the latency out. That's right. And so it, it kind of begs us to 
to look at this stuff uh, in the, in the in the lens through the lens of William J O'Neill supposedly making contact with a discarnate you know a dead NASA scientist named George J Mueller through this device called Spearcom and it's an excellent starting point and an excellent uh it's nothing more than a case study which I will admit at the outset is the it's the weakest form of research it is not an experimental design of any sort there's no there's no measurement then treatment then post measurement there's none of these you know good things but it is a great opportunity a case study to try to bring all of the um, uh, all of the theoretical understandings to bear upon the problem, and I know we throw around these words a lot, and I think I might have even used theory wrong a couple times tonight. But you know, when we say theory, a lot of listeners might think, "Oh, it's just a theory." Well, <clears throat> when we say theory, and I, I, I know we make every effort to use it in its proper term, the theory is a well-established principle that has yeah. been developed to explain some uh, aspect of the natural world or, or an observed phenomenon. So it's not, it's not weak at all. It, the theory yeah. arises from repeated observation and testing. And, and, it, much of, and much of what we have discussed tonight had fallen into the realm of hypothesis. Yes, theory. yes. Now, hypothesis I plays into theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the hypothesis is actually the route for the path that you'll travel to make the theory. That's right. The, the, the theory. When the, theory the tested hypotheses are widely accepted, this becomes a theory if you if you incorporate facts, laws, and other predictions, right? So, right. so the theory predicts events in general terms, while the hypothesis kind of makes a specific prediction about a specified yeah. set of circumstances. It's the seed you plant. That's right. Okay. So. Right. So to be clear, what we're what I'm about to discuss are in fact psychological theories that that they've been extensively tested and generally accepted and and uh a hypothesis while you know it that is a speculative guess that has for the most part yet to be yet to be tested fully okay right right so so a lot about I want to say I don't want to have to keep repeating um you know this is in the literature that's in the literature because uh, all this stuff I'm about to exactly. say is in the literature and and that thing that's important <coughs> to remember too is is the the hypothesis that you come up with you are led to that hypothesis by a series of events oh sure that may seem unconnected at first but a, a connection appears and your hypothesis forms based on the appearance of the connections of these events and and that holds true for any discipline that you're in whether it's psychology or physics or mathematics or what have you uh, the, the foundation for the path that you create is the same through all of them, and the methodology is the same through all of them. So in that aspect, yes, we, we have been talking a lot about hypotheses in, in my conversation yeah. when we were discussing my aspect of it, but I'm working towards the theory. That's right, yeah. The theory is forming as we're going. Um, in your case, you are actually relying upon established theories in the psychological community to uh, provide a framework for the categorization of what you encountered in the case study, and that needs to be clear too. Yeah, and but the way it's grafted onto the Spiritcom story, I think it I think it develops like a like an explanatory schema for so much that goes on in the paranormal, and it may it may help to some extent complement you know the work you're doing, which yeah, I, I admit to only understanding in a limited way. So using the Spiritcom as the case study, the jumping point, why do that? Well, just to give a rationale at the outset, 
that um, even if the listener had never heard of it, Spearcom was touted for um, you know the, the greater part of the last two decades to be like the best case in point, the best evidence, um, the most amazing data set, you know, the tape recordings of these converse two-way communication with the dead. It was considered to be like, um, you know, electronic voice phenomenon in real time. So it was, it was touted as this amazing data set. So uh, I'm figuring the data set's like imminently testable. It's it's a really well documented case, so it made for a good case study. So that's why I'm I was using it. Plus, there's this incredible, incredibly interesting figure, you know, Bill O'Neill. So we're going to get into things like um, a discussion of selective analysis, which I can honestly say I've seen you avoid at every possible turn. But this is something that people do by accident all the time if they don't have a scientific habit of mind. We're going to discuss over the next few minutes adopting extra cognitive conclusions as beliefs, and um, and then maybe we can make a transition tonight, David, if you're on board with this, where we almost set a new uh, a new way of doing things on the devil's advocate, where where we might almost establish links in chains of evidence, and then almost take like a, a prosecutorial bent. And almost, you know, play the devil's advocate and say if something is, you know, considered um, a pile of BS or not. Um, yeah, exactly. That, that could be interesting to stick with the whole devil's advocate. Oh, oh yeah, I'm saddled up. I'm ready to roll. Sweet. Well, all right. All that being said, um, I, I think it was touched upon briefly, but it needs to be said why Spiricom, you know, this case in point could um, could hold some interesting implications. So, like, why continue to study something if my conclusions about it are that the, you know, the operator of the device was sketchy, you know, a schizophrenic, and uh, and all this? Well, because um, if these explanations for Spiricom, um, we're only going to look at three of them for the moment. Uh, one, let's say it was really actually evidence of instrumental transcommunication with the dead. Uh, you know, EVP real-time EVP sessions. That's one explanation and one possibility. Uh, a second one, let's say it was a hoax perpetrated upon or by William O'Neill and George Meek. Or maybe three, what if it was one of these, um, like a self-deceptive expression of William O'Neill's delusions, or what's called in the literature, pathologies of belief. Whether they were consequent to his schizophrenia or not is almost um, secondary, except that it, all this could have been made possible by his um, his skills as a ventriloquist, and and really responsive to the uh, the fringe idea of after-death communications by technological means. And I call it that, but it really should be called the ever-developing cult of techno-mediumship. So <clears throat> that that in itself is a meme, isn't it? I mean, this cult of techno-mediumship. Yes. It grabs hold of people. We have, there are people who, um, who maybe go about this in a way where it becomes obsessive, and they are listening to cricks and cracks and static, and they're up at three in the morning and believe they're talking to invisible friends from a from a dimension called time stream, and and all of this and it that can become problematic and that has to be taken out of the data set. This is why David and I speak at this level from 
you know, the human condition of the situation to the theoretical implications of it all, because unless you excise from the data set these, um, these potential problems, you are leaving um, in the data set really what, what amounts to um, invisible tripwires of grief that you're just stringing for yourself later to say, well, you know, why didn't I take this out? So <clears throat> we have to have a means of doing this. And so one way of doing that is to look at the perception of the individuals involved. And that's not just to say credibility. Uh, we all know about credibility. Is, and it is important from one standpoint. But um, to continue then. So if the first explanation were true, factually true, that interactive instrumental transcommunications with a dead scientist occurred in, you know, 1980. Um, just look at what that would do for world religions. Just leave science aside for a moment, right? It would validate religion as a framework for understanding the anomalous and the ineffable to some degree. It would validate what I think is a... It's, it's a Christian for sure, but I think it's a... Catholic notion, this Aquinian principle of plenitude. Um, and, and of course, for science, it could provide science with evidence for the existence of extra dimensions. And if, if what David is sensing um, is, in fact, communications, it would, it would then be logical to assume that these are communications from, um, you know, post-fourth dimensional beings. So, evidence for the existence of parallel universes or a many-worlds model in a universe are kind of what's at stake here for scientific implications, right? Okay, so, oh, not to mention this, too, this is pretty cool, that um, there is the possibility for science, if science would find this very interesting, you know, what if the observer in this equation has got more to do with this than we think, and, and what if it all comes down to to an understanding of what thought is and how it affects the physical. So if it's that too, you know, you might we might end up understanding that um, the ITC phenomenon or EVP data set might support some expression of human potential like psychic abilities. And I'm not saying that's my particular view. I'm just saying, you know, while not in the purview of this conversation perhaps, that's one possibility that, you know, uh, EVP just like as just like uh, reverse speech is not seen as something um, or you know uh, uh, reverse psycholinguistics or whatever whatever the literature might call it you know the, uh, this idea that there are messages and speech spoken backwards as well as forwards and interpreted by the subconscious mind and and all this so I know it's just a theory but it's just an example it's a tie-in how EVP doesn't necessarily have to be seen as something um, relegated to the spiritual domain, you know. It could be an expression of human potential. That's exactly right. Yeah, so we have to leave and, those and possibilities. we can't open. neglect any of this. I mean, this is always has to be kept in mind. Yeah, no, exactly. And now, now let's look at something that's probably more mundane, and it is, because it, it's a lot of fun to talk about the implications related to physics, and it, that might include advancements in the understanding. Well, we discussed scalability of quantum events. Um, that's, that is way cool to talk about, but if we bring it down to what we discussed as the second explanation for something like Spiritcom or full-fledged 
two-way interactive uh, ETC, uh, ITC, or EVP conversations. Um, what if the second explanation that you know there was a hoax perpetrated by O'Neill and then by himself or or on O'Neill? Um, you know, then there are also many implications for study of what we spoke about last week. Um, I called them pathological group dynamics. Um, there's also implications for study of persuasion theory and the spread of fringe ideas as reality. And this is important because you don't really want the spread of fringe ideas as reality. You want actual reality, if I'm correct. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So further implications of study really uh, would include how subjective notions that um, motivate who knows, amateurs experimenting with unknown phenomenon are amplified by a lack of critical judgment. Um, this is a type of, I mean, it's called in the literature, it sounds harsh, but it's a kind of intellectual pathology. It's mo Folks would know it as magical thinking. Yeah. Um, and if there's just a little too much magical thinking sprinkled on just about any natural phenomenon, you can turn it into something <laughs> where... You know, you just have to tell everyone what you had seen, and yeah, um, you know. exactly right. Yeah, and this this notion, and I know we're throwing a lot of verbiage out there, so I guess folks can pause or jot it down, or maybe I'll send you like a tag cloud with all these these cool phrases to look up. But another cool one is predecisional distortion, and I think O'Neill was subject to this. I think a lot of folks who study this might be subject to this, and if everyone who wanted to contribute to the data set were to consider pre-decisional distortion, um, which is the tendency to evaluate incoming evidence in support of current beliefs. Uh, that would be an area for further research because that might kind of screen out those folks who, um, I guess, what's it called, David? Cherry-picking? Yeah. Cherry-picking evidence? Yes. Yeah, so uh, these seem like all real basics, but you can see that I'm building a case here that... Um, Someone like William O'Neill, this operator of the Spiricom device, who of course is the perfect storm of a schizophrenic with ventriloquist skills, with predecisional distortion, um, you know, amplified by a lack of critical judgment, so remarkable as to be really nearly unique, except for some of the folks on the scene nowadays. Um, so, uh, you know, we could have a discussion of fantasy proneness and. Um, and what's called subculturally available scripts. This makes sense, right? When someone experiences something like you said, now it's time to fit it. It's time to fit it into something we know. And we do that. Everyone does that with um, with available scripts. And these are, these are memes that are strung together, like these infectious ideas strung together. People may adapt these to movie uh, plots. We've seen this. Where someone will say, hey, this is just like, you know, the entity, yep. you know, <laughs> or something, right? And the next thing you know, confabulation occurs because your mind, as far as disaggregating the data and and recombining it into some whole new thought, your mind isn't really distinguishing between the movie plot the uh, and the details of the film, the entity, and what you experience. And now you get confabulation. Yep. where you're now adding details to fill in blanks, and sometimes 
you even fill in blanks that conform with culturally available scripts. And now, to make matters even more dangerous, David, and you probably have more experience seeing this than I do, to make all this fantasy proneness, uh, you know, and this and the issue of subculturally available scripts, um, even more dangerous, they can be reinforced by uh, the rewarding, focused attention of members in the subculture. So these little groups get together. And now, what would ordinarily be a story that would have them mocked and laughed at in in public, you know, the general public at large, right? Like the old line, hey, they have nothing to gain by sharing their paranormal experiences with the general public. Right. Well, that's true, but the opposite is true regarding the sharing of paranormal experiences with a population of paranormal enthusiasts. Right. Yeah, the notion that people have nothing to gain uh, is belied by two empirical observations. Uh, one, the compulsion to tell the story over and over again, and what we see is a pretty consistent pattern of confabulation, which has already been described. And there's almost like a one-upsmanship, like, well, you saw this, and well, yeah, well, I saw this plus that. And we see this because, um, well, this is how... This is how compulsion to tell the story and confabulation works. And we see this, this is a nice overlap with um, alien abductions. Yeah. Uh, besides the self-aggrandizement that we see when people say like, well, you know, the ghost had a message for me, and I have this special... Well, likewise, you know, the alien abductee or slash contactee, they had a message for me. They showed me things. I'm so important, I'm to be picked up and tested. Or, uh, or, or likewise, um, you know, the folks around shortwave radios listening to static pops and, and invisible voices, and they might say, well, you know, they're communicating with me. Timestream has a message of some impending doom or, you know, some great importance. So anyway, these are, these are commonalities that pop up so often, it's kind of like saying, it's kicking you in the teeth saying, hey, there's a pattern here. You might want to look at it. <laughs> right, so, so that's what I've done. As I've looked at these patterns, um, and it led me to a discussion if, if, the, if the second explanation of, you know, a, a hoax perpetrated by O'Neill were true, um, or really even if the second explanation were factually true um, when interpreted as a hoax um, perpetrated upon O'Neill and Meek, uh, that's pretty interesting too. Now, I, th- I would suggest in a future show, um, if you wanted to open up that Pandora's box, the idea of um, uh, psychological operations models led by the guiding question, you know, who benefits, qui bono. Uh, could these guys been have been duped? Could O'Neill have been chosen because of his latent schizotypy uh, and his predilection for paramimetic infection, right? Could could this whole thing, EVP, the paranormal, all the way up to ghost hunters on television, could it all be a psychological operation to program the public mind and, and co-opt religious intent? Or uh, um, could this all have to do with the psychobiological explanation that I am putting forward that, uh, that there's something called the parameme, which is like an infectious idea which is not good for your mind <laughs> that uh, that forces you to adopt extra extra cognitive conclusions. 
Right. So anyway, all that all that being said, we need to get into the cognitive nature of delusions, um, cognitive neuropsychiatry, and um, you know to what level of involvement does anomalistic perception you know play a role. So now we're into what was the third explanation earlier, um, which was if Spiritcom was a self uh, a self deceptive expression of O'Neill's mental instability. So now we're tying way back into what you said earlier, that sometimes folks take a road where um they might be in the they might be in the um the psychopathy zone just by virtue of what they had seen and they don't have an appropriate cultural script and they can't rewrite this in a way that makes their brain work because it doesn't fit a movie line. Um so I'm not saying that O'Neill was crazy when he came to this. There's also the possibility O'Neill and, and others are made crazy by this. That's so, exactly right. So there's a cautionary tale that there's a way to approach this stuff, which is why, David, we advocate the scientific habit of mind. It's the only critical exactly way. Right. It's the only critical way to protect yourself against um, really the you know uh, cognitive delusions that seem so real that you'd want to go find a place to have them reinforced in a small group. <clears throat> As we discussed earlier, you know, this whole idea of there's nothing to gain by sharing your experiences is completely untrue when you find the sympathetic ear of a small paranormal posse. That's um, exactly right. Yeah. So, um, now I don't know if uh, you give me a measure on this. If I'm If I'm putting folks to sleep, I don't want to do that. But I think it would be cool to discuss, let's just say, the notion of testable frameworks for better understandings of um, really cognitive and uh, the neural systems involved in delusions. You know, these, in other words, plausible mechanisms for how certain pathological beliefs arise like those manifested by some of these paranormal enthusiasts who don't who who come to not be able to discern or the experiencers who come to no longer be able to discern fantasy from reality as the boys from Paratopia call it they say this is when people start playing dungeons and dragons uh in real life you know the old acting yeah. out you know the role playing game from years yeah. ago they get sucked up into it and it becomes a reality Mm. Yes, this self-constructed, like, it becomes this this social convention, a psychological norm among a small group, not not objective reality. Right, Yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And, and it's a self-created reality. Yeah, which becomes much quite like dangerous. That's like the trolls that we deal with. Um, <laughs> Hold up, you've got your phone on your cheek there. Yeah, much, much like the trolls that we deal with who uh, sit in their mama's basement in their jockey shorts and uh, nefariously attack away at, at all of us out here trying to uh, learn something. Um, they're living a reality vicariously uh, through the false bravery of uh, a video screen in front of their computer. And uh, it's the same sort of mindset, and we have a lot of it in this field. Where uh, and, and you know, this is a prime example to touch upon them because they are so prolific. Um, <clears throat> they are people whose... Uh, psychosis uh, has altered their sense of reality to such that they feel that they're on some grand mission by trying to destroy people for doing legitimate work. Mm, yes. And I think, 
And I think a lot of that is based on the fact that they're such abysmal failures themselves uh, in, in creating or doing anything that they have to tear apart because they can't build. Mm-hmm. And, and and they see that as their their grand mission in life, their delusion of grandeur. You know, oh, I ripped apart Roundtree, or oh, I ripped apart Rourke. Uh, and the reality is, uh, they're they're essentially nothing but a a peon on a gnat's behind. Because in the grand scheme of things, they'll never be remembered for anything other than being a pain in the rear end for a very short period of time. Whereas the people that are doing the real research will probably discover something that they'll be remembered for. And it's sad in many ways when you have to deal with that mentality based on their delusion of reality. And it's uh, and a lot of people, in fact, we, you know, the hosts of, of Paratopia have dealt with this in the UFO community to the extent that uh, one of them is actually going to leave the show. And uh, it's sad that it comes to that. I mean... You know, I've always found, you know, I was talking to you earlier today that, uh, you know, when you have a cyber stalker who knocks upon your door, you just, you know, fire a couple of rounds of uh, 45 uh, ACP ammo over their heads and it generally <laughs> takes care of the problem. Um, but that's another example of this phenomena that's a sideshow to the actual research. And I think what's in, what makes it so important in the Spiritcom case study is is that this event actually birthed the modern age ITC movement. Oh, yeah, it did. So the entire modern ITC movement may be based on a hoax. (laughs) Yeah, well, now you've just brought it, yes, I mean, you have brought it down to the reality that folks are not getting. And uh, this reminds me of an email that I had with someone after I'd been on um, Coast to Coast AM and essentially it said, well, uh, here is my opinion after having unfettered access to all of the meta-science archives, all of the heretofore unheard tapes and video of William O'Neill operating the Spiritcom and all of this. And I said, well, it seems to me a hoax was perpetrated. Um, And then... Boy, you're right, the attacks came. The loonies who were looking for every reason to protect against disconfirmation of their beliefs, their intractable beliefs, which in the face of any new evidence, they would not change. So instead, they attacked the messenger. And you were right, they came out and, uh, you know, guns a-blazing. The attacks included um, everything from non-sequiturs to, check this out, well, what about ghost hunters, they're using EVP and blah, blah, blah. And then I wrote to them and said, well, don't you know what Spiritcom was? And yeah. I'd done this show on it, and it's as if they hadn't even heard it. And they yeah. said, well, none of that's important because people today don't know what that is. Okay, then I had to explain to them, just because, yeah, dude, this is the, this is the, like, the patient emails. I try to walk someone to some sort of an understanding, but it doesn't work. Uh, so I try to explain that just because modern-day, contemporary, like, graveyard skulkers with tape recorders and maladapted equipment to the experiment, just because they don't know what Spiritcom is, doesn't mean that it wasn't part of the foundational mythos of the cult of techno-mediumship which grips the show Ghost Hunters. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this whole techno-mentality... See, that's the thing. There are many groups that are technical. 
but there are few groups that are scientific. Ah. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference between the two. I mean, and I, I you know, I, I make a point to talk about this in my book as well, is that, you know, how often have you seen on TV someone dancing up and down and screaming Eureka because they have a spike on their EMF meter? Oh, boy. And that tells you nothing. No, it doesn't. But yet so much weight is placed upon things like that or the K2 meter responding to your voice, talking to it, or the, the flashlight trick where you slightly unscrew the flashlight so it's just off and you lay it around and then it seems to come on in response to your questions. Forget about the whole fact that there's a thing called arcing that occurs based on the relative humidity of the air and a lot of other natural things that make this thing periodically connect and disconnect uh, that has nothing to do with the paranormal. I mean, these are like techno uh, theatrics that are used Uh to sell cornflakes. But you notice... Each of these attempts at mediumship involves this technological component, not a medium, which means the foundational mythos of everything you're seeing today on TV that is popular, everything that is considered contemporary, quote-unquote, ghost hunting, is it's rooted in Spiritcom, where they took a technological approach. They took an instrumental transcommunication approach. And I know, I know ITC had been done before that, but we're talking about is this attempt at real-time interactive communication through a repeatable process by way of a technological means. And that's what this Mark IV Spiricom was. But interestingly, <laughs> it didn't really work for anyone else. Yes, I, uh, we, 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 we could uh, spend reams of paper and hours and, and tape on discussing that. Here's the problem with it, and here's why it's wrong. It, it is based on the assumption that A... We are able to, after we die, manipulate uh, energy, uh, RF fields as well as audio fields, mm-hmm. as well as uh, devices. Now, there is some anecdotal evidence that devices may be manipulated, power may be interrupted, things of that nature. But it assumes a lot of things. It assumes, for example, that we can modulate our voice on an RF carrier. I mean, the entire ITC movement is based on the fact that you can tune into a radio and pick up spirits talking. Now, I put forward that if this were true, we would be hearing dead grandma Moses on our AM radios in the morning when we were going to work. Mm, but we don't. But we don't. Mm-hmm. So if here's the, here's the thing, and here's the telling part of the whole ITC movement. If... We only hear these on the radios that they design or they put together. Mm. <laughs> How is physics so selective that electronics theory only applies to a select group of individuals who have essentially modified a standard piece of radio reception gear, or in the case of Spiritcom, some military surplus transmitters and receivers, um, to, to communicate with the dead. Well, I'll tell you why. It comes back to what we discussed as that, that EVP, ITC, alien abductee overlap, where it's this self-aggrandizement that places this person at the center of something very important. That's exactly Yeah, like, I'm so important. Or in the case of William O'Neill, as you just said with Spiricom, um, I just turned to the manual here, and I quote, um, this is regarding how George Meek 
concluded that it was it was O'Neill's mediumistic abilities. You see this fusion of technology and mediumship. Um, it was O'Neill's mediumistic abilities that had imbued the Spiritcom device with the ability to communicate with the dead. Here's the quote. Our research has shown that our success with this system, Mark IV, was possible only because of certain psychic energies of a very, listen to this, of a very rare nature possessed by the electronic technician operating the equipment. Well, I think uh, the psychic energies, while described as being of a, quote, very rare nature, uh, never were operationally defined, therefore they were never tested, thus rendering all Spiritcom evidence unfalsifiable, meaning it cannot be tested, essentially, while simultaneously reinforcing the delusional thinking of William O'Neill, the mechanism for the pathological beliefs inherent in his claims, and what became the intellectual pathology that others might succeed in similar attempts, despite all of Meek's, quote, evidence and experience to the contrary. This is our, this is our Chris Moon connection. This is yep. a dude who tells everyone, uh, get a box, do what I do, or pay me to do what I do, but um, it's only 30-something people that know how to do all this. Yeah, it started out as being 20. All right. But, now but see, when you, when you come from this aspect, not, nothing you do is, is, will fall under the realm of rep- replicability. <laughs> Replicability. Why yeah. do I have so much trouble with that? that Everyone's word? got their word. <laughs> I have, for some reason, I have a, a terrible time with that thing. Mine is anomalous. That's hysterical. Yeah. Uh, let's see, we're human. Yeah. We have our flaws, but uh, yeah. So Eat I mean, for yourself. <laughs> the whole thing is now, now how Frank's box works. Yeah. Is, is really uh, is really simple. It, they take a an AM tuning chip, an mm-hmm. IC that's normally put in every auto-tuning radio that has the auto-tune function. Usually car radios have this, but some home uh, systems have it. And what they do is is they take and they, um, they over-bias the control transistor that turns on and turns off the auto-tuning function of the chip. Yeah. So... What happens is, is because it doesn't, it has a constant over bias. It's continually scanning up and down uh, the AM band. Mm-hmm. Now the AM band is prolific with what? Talk, Talk radio. That's exactly right. So you're going to get people talking. So what's going to happen is, is that oh, and I would just jump in here to also say that the D- the DJs on FM radio, they just about don't ever shut up either. Yeah, well, that's true too. That's true too. But they they exper- it's funny, they experimented using an FM chip and then went back to the AM chip because oh, they just the results they wanted. Mm. Um, because there was a lot more music and, and things like that. But yeah. what happens is is this thing goes just like if you sit in your car radio and try this sometime, turn on the AM radio and just start rapidly going back across the dial back and forth. You mm. can do it with any AM radio. Old small transistor radio will prove the point. You just keep tuning back and forth. Well, you're going to get this as you go through. Well, you know what? If you do it long enough, it's going to start making words. Mm-hmm. And then if you really get your mind in the right place, uh, you know, the, the powers of the universe are flowing and the, and the chi force or the key force or whatever is flowing properly through your chakras, 
you know, suddenly now this radio is talking to you and telling you exactly what you want to hear, when in essence it's really making a lot of noise and bits and pieces of pronunciations of words. Now, I have a, a colleague of mine that lives in Australia that's actually a linguist, and she verifies the fact, particularly with the English language, that by randomizing sounds and words, you can make sense 40 to 50% of the time just through sheer random assemblage of the words. And that's yeah. the nature of the language itself. It's, yeah, it comes down to the way our phonemes assemble. Exactly. So what happens is, is you'll get a bits and pieces of phonetics that assemble into a word. Mm-hmm. You'll get one or two words or a phrase that gets created. And suddenly that's a personal message from dead Uncle Albert uh, from beyond the realm of telling me what to do. But it's because the person, A, wants to hear from dead Uncle Albert, number one. And two, they are forming from the noise, the words that they want to hear. Because I've heard some of the files these things generate, and I swear I'm not hearing what these people are claiming they're hearing. Yeah, but the fact you hear something else, it implies that this verbal transformation effect is the real phenomenon, not so much that a dead person is talking. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Now, that verbal transformation effect, I think it's called on some of the shows like audio matrixing or whatever, um... Matrixing is a big word right now. Like everybody in the paranormal field is using it, and no one has a clue what it means. No, they don't know what it means, but they just—it sounds totally awesome. Neo's in the Matrix, and so are you. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, nerd talk time. We should have yeah. a nerd talk warning. But yeah. the um, you know EVP findings for the folks that are listening, um, uh, you know, unlike alien abductions, they're generally brief, and they require exactly right. repeated listenings to discern as something resembling intelligible speech. So, so the listener in the case of, of EVP uh, may be particularly prone to the verbal transformation effect and, um, uh, and what's called uh, apophenia. Um, and that can be compounded by, and you say this word better than I, this, uh, you know, the, the pareidolia when you look at clouds and stuff. Um, there's, there, obviously there can be like an auditory uh, pareidolia. And the verbal transformation effect, to just put it in more common terms, is yeah. experienced as illusory changes in repeated words. And now, what people consider to be the founder of this, uh, Radova, you know, this was a guy who who would concede in his own book, Breakthrough, to listening to his his thousands of examples thousands of times. You know, he's essentially creating the perfect situation for verbal transformation effect. Now, apophenia is the spontaneous perception of meaningfulness of unrelated phenomenon like auditory stimuli. Exactly. And 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 pareidolia. Pareidolia is just a subset of that effect. It's a form of it. Well, precisely. It's a type of misperception involving obscure stimulus being perceived as clear and distinct. So if you take those three things together, I know a lot of folks, they, they call them the same thing. And I'm arguing that it's this perfect storm of three separate nuanced phenomenon. It is the verbal transformation effect, which again is, uh, is an experience of the illusory changes in repeated words. Apophenia is the spontaneous perception of meaningfulness of unrelated phenomenon like bits and pieces of phonemes as auditory stimuli. And, and pareidolia is 
a type of misperception involving obscure stimulus being perceived as clear and distinct and meaningful. And so you can see that, um, whereas apophenia in, in EVP perception, let's call it audio Rorschach, where meaning is attributed to brief sounds heard on audio media, um, explainable as artifacts of auditory perception, whereas apophenia in EVP might suffice for the truncated voice phenomenon in most EVPs, the Spiricom recordings um, being of such length and apparent interaction really require an explanation beyond apophenia compounded by this thing we're calling you know, auditory paradelia, uh, all, all undergirded by this verbal transformation effect. And that's why you need to look past it, which is why we'd want to get, if not this episode, we'd want to eventually get into a little bit more on pre-decisional distortion, how that might play with the cognitive nature of delusions and with you know, what we know about uh, there's really considerable evidence from cognitive neuropsychology for the involvement of anomalistic perception and what's called, this you'll love this phrase, probabilistic reasoning. Uh, and there's even something called metacognition and attribution bias. Anyway, it all plays into delusional formation of ideas. And that doesn't mean people are crazy. It just means that unless you're aware of these things, they take hold. They grip the mind. It begins to change um, uh, the storyline, so to speak. And it becomes a more compact and infectious idea that gets repeated in a small group of folks with a... uh, with a wishful ear to hear these things, and then it's compounded by your compulsion to retell the story because of this, because of this uh, reward you get. There's this cycle of, you know, uh, these folks have a cycle of reward and attention seeking. Um, yeah, and it, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, mommy didn't love them. None of this is meant to be disparaging. We're trying to be pretty clinical here. Um, so, anyway, what do you think about that direction? No, I, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, and, you know, these are things that, uh, to us, I don't know about you, to, to me it's an annoyance. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and to, and to me it's one of the most fascinating parts of it, so that's why it, this, it, is, it, this it's, is good. It's fascinating um, from your aspect because you're into that. You're mm-hmm. into studying that mindset. Um, to me, it's aggravating because I'm dealing with these jerks on a daily basis. Oh, I know. But you know what? The more we can recognize each of these kind of um, uh, these processes that that would have the retelling of events done wrong and would really fuel a mythos rather than fact, um, the more you can identify those, the more you can redact them from the data set and make the data set stronger. Well, so, and also, too, it... it, it helps you to cope with them when you understand it better. Um, one of one of the key things that uh, has happened to me over the course of all this is as I have understood uh, the makeup of these people, it comes a lot easier to deal with them because you understand, A, how to diffuse them, mm-hmm. B, how, how to effectively deal with them and wipe your hands of the situation, 
and C, you know, apply a mental, a mortal blow to their psyche so that they'll never mess with you again. Um, so consequently, it's good to study this aspect of it from my point of view, but it doesn't take away from the fact that they're extraordinarily aggravating. Yeah, they are, yes. Well, I, I'm down with your intellectual kung fu take on it. That is pretty cool. Uh. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I, I try to oversimplify it as much as I can, but and the, the bottom line is, is you know, that's, that, that's, the, that's the, the common sense thing that you're dealing with there. You're dealing with miscreants that, due to their inadequacies, must take it out on you or someone like you mm-hmm. and uh, uh you know it, it it may be a very um prolific uh number of people or effects or or uh i want to say a psychosis because they are nuts um of the field and i think we see it more in this field because of the nature of the field itself Number one, because oh, yeah. you have to be a little loony to get involved with it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, something could happen that pushes you over the edge, and suddenly you're a full-blown wacko. Now, and now you know what I'm going. Yes, it's true. But now I'm going to defend something which is wildly unpopular to defend. Because while I defend, I incidentally offend, and I'm really not trying to do that. I don't think folks get this, uh, I hope listeners don't get, like, an attitude uh, from me. I'm, no, I, th- I think if we come across, like, you know, hey, this is, you know, we're not trying to, you know, beat on anybody's drum here, but this is an observance, and, and yeah. it's something that we should realistically look at from a rational point of view. Well, now, here, in my defense of interest in the paranormal as something that's not really crazy, because I'm fascinated by it, I don't consider myself nuts, I contend, and here's my accidental offense as I defend. My accidental offense is when you look at the world's religions which are publicly acceptable. People go to churches. People go to synagogues. They all tell crazy stories. Oh, yes. And they tell these insane tales which uh, now, just factually, evidentially. Now, I, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying anything about what someone should or should not believe. I'm be trying to be really clear about this. That's, we don't we correct. don't need like a South Park uh, Muslim situation going on here. But in all seriousness, the stories that are told are like about um, sons of God coming and uh, they're dead. They're not dead. They're rising. They're all this is going on. You see, and this is like yeah, that happened. It's cool. But you talk about the possibility of extra dimensions having some influence possibly under this theoretical framework and a discussion of the validity of these things, and that's, woo, man, that's real crazy. Well, I'll tell you what, put on a scale, uh, the loonies, the loonies in the pews forking over the cash every Sunday, uh, on a scale, those cats have it, if you ask me. They have it all the way to Sunday, man. On top of that, um, the book... Is just is fraught with these internal inconsistencies, and this is not an attack on religion. What I'm saying is, it is an imperfect system, and there are people who study it called theologians, and they attempt to rectify the inconsistencies and make the process a better experience for its adherents. That's and right. You can see you can see that all we're trying to do is the same thing with this issue of the quote-unquote paranormal. That's all we're trying to do. So uh, the folks who want to, you know, 
come at us with, uh, you know, uh, the teeth out, the fangs dripping with blood and all that, you know, take it elsewhere, because I'm really, I'm not into the incendiary stuff. I'm kind of down with the intellectual process of things. Someone can really claim just about anything they'd like to me. If you can, if you can back it up with some logical underpinning, um, I'd entertain the thought very politely, you know. So uh, if we can kind of bring some semblance like that. Now, if that doesn't happen, I'm with you where it's time to, I prefer my nine. I know they're, they're probably not quite up to your standard, but listen, the clip load's easy, fast, <laughs> and that's that's how I roll. So you've, you've got more rounds. That's the difference. Well, that's the thing. Yes. <laughs> so we both, in the end, we're both going to take it street level if it comes down to it. But we are trying to bring some civility to it and trying to bring some intellectual honesty to the paranormal. That's the, that's the difference too. In religion, you're dealing with belief and faith. Mm-hmm. These, these are two things that are without definition. All right. What we are doing, though, belief and faith have very little to do other than in yourself and your methodologies with what you're going after. You're actually looking for a trail, a physical trail of evidence. And that's the difference. Religion is meant to be a faith. It's, it's meant mm-hmm. to be a belief. That's right. What we are doing is meant to be a discipline. And and uh, should be a discipline. Mm, should be. It, right. it is a, In other words, that's the that's the vision we share. Yes. It, yeah. It's it's and it's all about perception. There are people, a lot of people in the field who are faith based. They oh, yes. are believing, and they are and they have faith and they have belief and and that's what is is driving them. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. But call a spade a spade. Yeah. Don't call it science. Don't call it science because it isn't. It's okay. it's you know you're you're entertaining yourself. You're following a belief, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it isn't science. It is faith. It is belief. And and like I say, there there's a lot of that, and that's fine. But let's call it what it is. Let's not get out there and parade it for something that it isn't, because that's what gives the potential of this being a field a bad name. That's right, and that's why you know a future discussion. It's obviously not in the time frame for tonight, but a future discussion. The distinction between, almost like a kind of, we'll make this as, uh, really interesting, a distinction between uh, science and pseudoscience. And people would be surprised how much of what they think is science is actually pseudoscience. That's exactly right. Yeah. And, and the, the, the biggest battle is the separating those two. That's right. And, you know, I, I see it with gadgetry all the time. You know, you see these things, the K2 meter. You know, they're mm. making... They're making a certain uh, self-proclaimed psychic very wealthy. Um, there's another device out there called the ovulus. Yes. Or they call it the puck. Mm-hmm. And the, this is what people, few people read the fine print in these things. First of all, um, it has a built-in dictionary. Oh, boy. Of words yes. that are put in by the designer. Mm. We're back he to selects this, the we? words. He <laughs> selects the words and puts them in to this database that's on board the device. It stores, I think, something like 10,000 words. And then, based on different aspects of the environment that the device measures, uncalibrated, by the way, Mm. uh, such as EMF, magnetic fields, different things, temperature changes, fluctuations, it selects a word from that list Mm -hmm. and assembles the words. Sometimes you just get one word. Or if you have a complex waveform or complex events that the device is measuring, you might get a phrase or a sentence. Now, it's always going to be related to paranormal because the deck is stacked before you start using it. 
number one. Yeah, just about and anything that thing would generate, you'd say, wow, boy, that's, yeah, that's oh, pretty that, strange. They're, they're, they're saying something that's very pertinent. And the words that are picked out are carefully picked out to make sense in a lot of different situations. Mm-hmm. So, And then in the fine print on their website, they have this device does not claim to be able to communicate with the dead. It is a novelty item only, blah, 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 blah. But it's so small, it's got to have this disclaimer on there or these guys will go to jail. You know? Now, shouldn't the disclaimer be at least the size of the Surgeon General's warning on a cigarette case? <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. You know, th- as long as it's there, they're covered legally. Mm. It doesn't have to be readable without a magnifying glass. It just has to be there. And it's up to the user to beware, you know. Well, it sure is. Now, now this comes back to uh, uh, something Jim Hale used to say all the time. Uh, The technology is not the experiment. No. And this is where it gets all mixed up with this K2 meter. You know, someone someone four blocks away makes a cell phone call. You're going to get a ping. That's exactly right. It, it's it's even worse than that. Oh, Someone turns on their microwave in the house, you get a ping. You get too close to the clock on the wall, you get a ping. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's unshielded. It has a very wide bandwidth, so it's picking up things all across the, the frequency spectrum. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no shielding. There's no directionality. So it's omnidirectional in its response. And it isn't accurate because all you're seeing is flashing lights on the K2 meter, for example, and it's not calibrated. So again, this device meant for techno-mediumship really becomes an exercise in the human's ability to recognize patterns and meaning when there is none. That's exactly right. And and it boils down to this. If you are looking for EMF with an EMF meter, you are fooling yourself and wasting your time. Because all you're going to know is is that you have EMF. You're not going to know what frequency it is, and it very well probably is going to be 60 cycles, which is, you know, everywhere in our environment. Yeah, pervasive. Um, it, the only way to study EMF is to actually look at the waveform, actually see what the frequency of it is, and analyze the actual mechanics of the waveform itself to determine how it could be manufactured or what it may be. And the only way to do that is by using a sensor and an oscilloscope, and very few people are doing that. And if everyone did that, you would be amazed at the amount of discoveries. I mean, there would be bucketfuls of discoveries coming forward because people would be in all these areas where there's activity, and they would actually be seeing something that was, like, um, pertinent to the whole scheme of things. And I can't preach that enough. If you can only buy one piece of equipment, buy an oscilloscope and get a MagCheck 95 for magnetic sciences for 95 bucks and, and you're in business. The whole package will run you about $400. About $400. And now, you know, you've got a tool that you can uh, data load to your laptop for analysis, uh, run it in real time with uh, software on your PC, um, and it's evidence that's hard empirical evidence that, you know, you can't fake. You know, this is stuff that unless you can hack the software and change all sorts of parameters, you can't fake this evidence. So it's evidence that's very strong, and it stands the test of scrutiny. Yeah, it's not subject to selective analysis. That's exactly right. You've either got something or you don't. And uh, and I I can't preach that enough. And uh, so it comes back to our, uh, so, you know, here's our nerd lesson for the evening the difference between validity and uh, reliability and why these are both important. You know, so you got you got validity. 
and a lot of people, they throw that word around. Again, this is about scientific trappings. They throw the word around like, well, we have validity in our process because we repeat it uh, the same way. Well, same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, see, val- yeah. <laughs> validity is actually the extent um, to which the test you're doing measures what it claims to measure. It's that simple. And, I mean, it's, it's obviously vital for a test to be uh, valid, and so this is why you would need these type of uh, measurements you're talking about so that the results could be accurately applied and interpreted. And this is where reliability comes from. It refers to the consistency of a measure. So a test is considered reliable if you get the same or similar results you know, repeatedly. That's right. Right, and and we don't mean the same mistakes repeatedly, which is a whole other thing. Right. Um, that's, and that's a that's a path of its own there. Yeah, it sure is. Now, all this and more can be found in your forthcoming book, David, Paranormal Technology: A Guide to Understanding the Science of Ghost Hunting. That's exactly right, and um, you you actually are one of the few to pre-read it. Oh, it's a great book. It really is. And, uh, and offer a uh, blurb for the back cover, which is greatly appreciated. Well, we'll be doing, like, audio reviews here as we go, and then uh, got to formalize it. But, yeah, you can't ble- it seems like a perfect time to mention that you just cannot be complimented enough on showing the reader how to walk through this process of intellectual honesty we're talking about, how to take a, a really... Anyone, you could have a uh, you could have a pretty mushy approach to this, and after reading this book, you would actually have a scientific habit of mind that you could take to the field and practice it. And you could still operate outside the mainstream paradigm, but you'd be able to do so through a dispassionate analysis of data to reach real conclusions. And if you want to know what actually happened when you think something anomalous has happened, you should do what David does in the book. Begin with a null hypothesis. This is saying that nothing extraordinary happened. I know that's tough for a lot of folks, but that's where you have to start. Then you should examine, as David advises, with the technology he recommends. You examine each piece of evidence that something extraordinary maybe did happen, but you do so individually upon its own merits. You don't cherry-pick. Then you discover if there's an explanation for each piece of evidence that um, supports or denies that hypothesis we talked about, right? And then, if you eliminate worldly explanations before considering otherworldly explanations, let's just say your conclusions would be a whole lot more valid and reliable. That's exactly right. I I couldn't say it better. Yeah. And and the thing thing that was um, the challenge of writing the book was to keep it at two levels. Um, number one, I wanted to appeal to the average Joe who's out there trying to understand what's going on and trying to do the right thing, but really lacks a source for getting the right information. And two, I wanted to have it on a higher level so that people with a, a, a background in science and possibly uh, someone influential in the field of physics or other areas that could lend a hand would read it and be inspired to uh, assist with research from their own perspective as well. So there's a lot of uh, technical speak interlaced with commonsensical speak, mm-hmm. whereas I will go into a nerd talk where I will you know, go to the nth degree of what's going on with physics, and then I will come back in a couple of sentences and say, 
what this really means is blah, 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 so that, you know, the average person says, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So keeping it on two levels was the biggest challenge without losing continuity in each chapter because, uh, as you read, I can go off on some pretty serious tangents with the, uh, the theoretical parts of it. Yeah, um, as we both but, do. But then I try to come down to earth with the one paragraph of this is what this really means, you know. No, that's that's uh, the thing. It's really, in so many ways, it's concise. I don't think you meander uh it's it's all it's all great economy of language the book is real tight well uh, i try to make it entertaining to read too i mean the reader needs to be entertained because it does get dry in places because you're dealing with uh data you know you're dealing with uh, analytical stuff that's right and and uh sometimes you have to kind of keep the person entertained so i'm always flying off with uh, a statement like you know hold on but wait a minute or you know, mm-hmm. you know not so fast you know uh, after a conclusion is reached, that's not necessarily the complete conclusion type of thing. So I try to keep it entertaining along the way so that it's actually kind of the developing story within the story of, of, of how to use these devices. And, and then we actually put a few experiments in there so people can play with. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I tried to... And, and, and some theories, some real... Some, some of my own theories and, and some of the... Uh, uh, notions that are commonly held in, in, in the field right now, and point out the weaknesses and the strengths of strengths of those of those uh, hypotheses would be the better word. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, what I wanted it to be was a tool, a tool for ghost hunter groups that want more, want a little more out of what they're doing. Don't just want to do the same old thing every weekend, run around with a couple of pieces of handheld gear and make a pronouncement. There's the tools in the book for any group to elevate themselves to a scientific level and approach to their ghost hunting. Which, again, the appeal is that is needed because if we want to attract the folks we need to attract so that we can bring to bear the experts and their expertise, if we can bring those folks and their expertise to bear upon the paranormal problem, we might actually get something solved. But if we continue to alienate them with you know, kook ass way way out uh, stuff, man. You know, that's really going to make them run, turn tail, and duck and cover, which is which is the current state of affairs. Oh yeah. With the exception of the folks you've interfaced with, because uh, I would dare to say, here's the pattern: uh, your approach is scientific, so they respond because you speak their language. That's exactly right, and and the only way we are going to to get that is to speak their language yeah so it's time to uh... you know get down with the language get down with these uh... scientific habits of mind uh... and the only way to do that well there's a couple of paths continue your search you know get david's book paranormal technology a guide to understanding the science of ghost hunting and um... and let's see Continue to listen to The Devil's Advocate and uh, what Paratopia shows are being brought to you. Absolutely. Now, in future episodes, this may be, um, I mean, this is all subject for change. But now... At a moment's notice, apparently. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to throw a few things out there for anyone else who might hear it. They want to comment. Um, if they'd like us to go these directions. I'm going to throw some ideas out. You're welcome to as well. The first is, I think... At least some portion of the next show ought to be taken to 
follow up on this idea of a meme. I mean, I know I called it an infectious idea, but, you know, the question kind of must linger in the thinking man's mind. Well, Rourke, if these para-memes are so, you know, potentially problematic for their hosts, particularly like what we're describing as these fringe idea or hard-to-explain memes, if they're, if they're essentially like a, like a psychogenic contagion, well then, how can their spread, how can their replication be a part of the Darwinian survival contest, you know? Like, like uh, uh, how does this parameme idea make any sense in the grand scheme of things from like a psychobiological approach? So I have, I have a, a pretty good theory for that. I've got this notion of parameme reinforcement. We can discuss um, uh, parameme protection. We can discuss how logical fallacies become impervious to the parameme. Um, impervious, and, I love that word. Yeah, impervious. and and we discuss some of the uh, conclusions after all this and maybe some further research. And some of the brain chemistry involved, by the way, would be fascinating for listeners, I think. When I discuss this notion of like a... a um, an attention-seeking, then reward cycle? Well, you know, there's, there's another aspect that goes with the chemistry as well, and that's the actual electronics of the brain. Oh, yes. The, the chem, chemical electro reactions of the brain, or electrochemical, I guess would be the right way to put it. I'm getting myself uh, back asswards here. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, uh, the actual impulses that are involved with this sort of thing, as well as the chemical proceeds, that are involved, I think, are an area that is rarely talked about. So, I mean, that would be kind of blazing a trail, pretty much. Yeah, and it all it all feeds into this adopting of extra cognitive conclusions. Really, exactly. they're, they're not well thought out. So, yeah, that's a cool place to go. And you know, we'll be discussing you know dopamine receptors and how this all goes on. Essentially, yes, you heard me say dopamine receptors. So that so that this retelling of the tales and the experiencing of the experiences becomes almost a uh, uh, a drug unto itself. At least, well, in its think of it like uh, you're programming a hard drive. The mm. more you put the data in, the more it stays put. I mean, you're, you're actually defragging it into uh, some semblance of reality. So, exactly. I mean, these are things that, that bear exploring. Um, one of the things that I want to bring up because of your involvement in the ITC uh, case study is uh, the concept of actually building an ITC device based on reality and science instead of uh, hoopla and, and hoaxology. So, uh, yes. Uh, and, you know, we actually have a model we're playing with that I put together very cheaply, and I have a model that's very expensive. So, uh, But it's off-the-shelf off stuff that anyone can purchase, and you don't have to have ethereal powers from the beyond to be able to operate it. So um, those oh, are practical kind of aspects. Yeah, that would be a practical uh, subject that we would go into, because I kind of like touching on practical as well as theoretical. Uh, to help the listeners uh, get some direction on things that they can actually do in the field to uh, improve their chances of finding something. That's right. The theoretical complements the applied, so absolutely. Exactly. Now, um, yeah, to complement that, because that's going to ground folks, and that's now I don't have any inside track. I'm going to wait for that conversation so that it's fresh and new on the uh, for the eavesdroppers. But the, uh, the this idea of the psychological operation I brought up earlier, Right. Um, there's a direct overlap since we're talking to a Paratopia podcast crew uh, who have an interest in the paranormal and the ufological. Um, this idea of, of the psychological operation, it, it needs to be discussed that 
there's this incredible overlap about what the uh, the need to program the public mind seems to be. You know, this, um, uh, I don't know if it is co-opting religious intent or not, but there sure is a whole lot of interesting ties from Andrea Puharich, uh you know, all the all the way up to uh, CIA work called MKUltra. Yes. Uh, this all Project kind of and uh, all these other things. Oh yes, and <laughs> it, it all it all can be brought to bear upon this idea of a psychological operation in the paranormal, which you know, we, we, psyops. Yes, we can tease out, you know, tease out the evidence for that in a future. Um, yeah, and and the thing is fascinating also for the Paratopia folks out there. Uh, their primary focus is on ufology, and. Uh, the thing that I try to put out there is that all this stuff is really related. Sure it is. The phenomena involved in in the ghost phenomena is uh, the same phenomena that you're dealing with with all the aspects of the paranormal. There's a common denominator that runs through all of it. And uh, I had a, a couple of questions on the forum board that I tried to address today about EMF and EVP and, and, and that sort of thing. But all of these things are present in all things we label paranormal. So there's a common denominator that's actually measurable in all of this stuff. And all of the fields that are lumped loosely into the paranormal nomer should apply aspects of this commonality to their research because I, I think the answers are going to lie in the scientific aspect of the phenomena and not the uh, problematic mindsets that tend to color the evidence collected in the phenomena, mm. Um, mm. and and that touches base back on you know what you're talking about. So oh yeah, now to just to quickly continue the uh, the overlap between the paranormal and the ufological, you know Nick Redfern has uh, recently written a great book, and if I could summarize the book, he essentially establishes through government documents that you know the UFO research community served as a useful laboratory in which to observe the effects of propaganda and disinformation because precisely because it's driven in large part by you know an extent uh, uh, I'm sorry an intent to expose the cover up right so the uh, it turns out that UFO research communities were infiltrated um, uh, disinformation inserted and the effects of that in disinformation observed and this is a psychological operation well I'm suggesting that the same could be documented, maybe not to the same extent, but to some extent, in uh, the paranormal. Specifically, we could talk about the Spiritcom case. If we look at um, exploring implications of study as a consequence of exposing the Spiritcom story as a hoax, you know, we need to ask, well, was it a psychological operation? Just as one of the questions. Was Spiritcom nothing more than, let's say, a conspiracy to assassinate the character of the real George Mueller who worked for NASA um, just because they used the name George Mueller for this obscure Orange Coast Community College professor, you know, like basically a big nobody versus this this NASA Mueller who would be tied to many Defense Department contracts. Maybe it was that. Uh, maybe was the entire event remotely influenced or, uh, well, by the likes of Pew Harich, 
this uh, this uh, CIA handler for uh, the spoon bender um, did uh, for some nefarious means by way of MK Ultra technology and or techniques. You know, I'm willing to explore all that. And in the end, it does come back to the psychobiological explanation for these ideas, like the paramine. Um, why would why would part of the human condition be adopting extra cognitive conclusions, and how can we think our way out of the problem? So, you know, first, Dr. Phil would say, first you've got to recognize you have a problem. So that's part of the process is to say, hey, these are the things I could be doing wrong. These are the things I could be involved in, you know, self-sabotage, completely un- unbeknownst to my, to my conscious mind. That's exactly right. I yeah. mean, that's part of being the devil's advocate is that we have to constantly check and balance ourselves to make sure that what we put out is reliable and 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 is logical. Yes. And we've constantly got to check and balance ourselves and and judge ourselves based on that notion. And 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 it's really true. I mean, even even all of us who are driven Sometimes we can be driven so hard we become blind to certain things. Oh, yeah. And we have to be careful of that because that's how you let uh, inconsistencies creep into what you're doing. And I, I'm almost anal about my approach to it, so I, I constantly beat myself up. I have these arguments with myself in, in the wee hours of the morning over conclusions that I reach and, and that sort of thing just so that I... I and. and I try to turn every stone, and and that's the important thing that this will do is if we can teach folks to look inward and to assess themselves realistically, it will make their data more powerful. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's all it's all about the data set, and then we can talk about interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so we've answered questions, and we've question answers. Yes, and 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 our little podcast is growing. Yes, indeed. And, uh, With the help of uh, the uh, Paratopia guys. That's yes, great. many, many, many thanks to them for giving us this little boost here. Uh, and we can remind folks that when we're not featured on Paratopia, our podcast will be up every week at the uh, org site. Um, so if you want to follow us, it'll be posted. Usually uh, we have it up by Monday. Uh, on, on, uh, it seems like we're we're hitting pretty close to reality with that. We usually have it up on Monday, and then uh, you can follow us as well in your off time when you're not listening to Paratopia. Excellent. And we promise to uh, try to be constructive and and witty and funny and and nerdy. Um, and you can email us if you have specific questions uh, about. Uh, uh, on our website where the podcast is, is archived, we actually have both our email addresses. So if you've got a question for either one of us, you can pop us an email and we'll uh, address it on the next show. Excellent. And on that note, David? It's been real and it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. <laughs> All right, brother. Till next time, my man. Till next time. All right. Looking forward to it. And I need another cup of coffee. Heck yeah. All right, brother. We'll talk. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you have it, folks. Was that not freaking spectacular? Um, I think that was probably the science lesson that Jeff had wanted so many episodes ago. Next week, John Galanders, a listener of the show, does the first solo 
episode. So he will be talking about his experiences and his theories. And so that will give you yet another taste of what this new direction of Paratopia can be. Right now, I'd like to throw out something, which is my hat for money. That's right, I'm going to beg you for money. The reason I'm going to beg you for money is because I am completely strapped for cash, unemployed, and yet an opportunity has arisen that I feel like I can't let go without a fight. So, the opportunity is to go cross-country to South Dakota with Teokas and Ghost Horse and a number of his friends uh, to meet the elders. He's doing this at the end of July. I invited myself <laughs> along. I'd love to say he invited me, but I actually was like, "Can I? Can I go?" Uh, and yeah, he enthusiastically said yes. So I would like to do that. I have no money to do that. If you would like me to do that, <laughs> then kindly send me your money, and uh, and I will do it. And I will, I'm sure, talk about it on the show. Maybe it'll be a road trip episode, although I don't know how much technology I'm really going to want to bring on this trip. I don't even know if I really want to bring my cell phone on this trip. But in any event, if the trip can happen for me, it's because of you. Um, so if you would like to donate to the Jeremy Vaney Goes and Meets the Elders Fund, you can send donations uh, through the PayPal using the email address kinesianhouse at yahoo.com. That's K-Y-N-E-G-I-O-N house all one word at yahoo.com or you can email me at paratopiapodcast at gmail.com and we can take it from there. Uh, Alright, thank you very much in advance. Onward, upward, and through? Question mark? <laughs>